The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 22nd chapter. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Jesus asked them, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Many of you probably know of the 20th century Christian apologist and author C.S. Lewis. He wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and along with it, the rest of the Chronicles of Narnia. What he's most known for is that. But he also did some other works, too. Apologetics, books and articles, defending the Christian faith over and against skeptics. You see, at one time, C.S. Lewis was not himself a believer. He did not believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God or that religion in general was true. But he was converted as an adult and became, like St. Paul, a zealous apologist for the veracity of the Christian faith. And one of the things that he addressed in his book, probably his biggest known book outside of the Narnia books, is Mere Christianity. One of the things he addressed was those people that tried to equivocate whenever you would talk to them about Jesus. Well, I'm not a Christian, they might say, but I think Jesus was a great man. He was an inspirational speaker. He was a teacher, someone that we ought to pay attention to, but let's not go so far as to say that he is the eternal Son of God, crucified and risen from the dead for the sins of humanity. Such people, he said, would try to skirt the issue, sort of giving enough so whenever the person, the Christian, would make a confession about the Christ, they wouldn't feel completely turned off because the people were, well, in a sense, paying a bit of lip service to Jesus. But Lewis knew that that was a half measure. That was them trying to find a middle ground which in fact did not exist. And he lays that out in the book Mere Christianity with a threefold argument about who Jesus was. He said, Jesus Christ was either a liar, he was a lunatic, or he was in fact the Lord that he claimed to be. He was a liar and that he could have been just faking the whole time, duping people, doing parlor tricks as it were, kind of like Pharaoh's magicians did after Moses and Aaron went before Pharaoh. He could have been a lunatic, somebody that just was crazy and for whatever reason enough people followed along and went along with it but he didn't really believe the things that he said about himself or he believed them but they were completely delusional or if not one of those things he was the Lord he was who he said he was the Messiah the Christ of God and everything he said and he was was true 
Lewis said that he was one of these things, but he wasn't just a nice guy. He wasn't just an interesting person, some that we should read and think about like Plato or Aristotle, but he was only one of these things. And the person who was encountering Jesus had to do this, had no choice, Lewis said, but to isolate these options of what he could be, look at the evidence that was laid before them about what he was, and then follow the evidence to where it led. Namely, that Jesus Christ is in fact Lord. The Pharisees had trouble with this. They had a lot of difficulty following the evidence where it led. You see, in our gospel lesson, it starts with it. The Sadducees had failed. Jesus had silenced them and their skepticism about him. And so they shut up and they stopped asking him questions. Well, now it's the Pharisees' turn to stump Jesus, to show him, hopefully, once and for all, or at least for the first time, since they hadn't up until this point, that he was not the true Messiah the people should be listening to and following. And so they ask him a question. What is the greatest commandment in the law? A lawyer gets up and speaks for them and asks him this question, and it's easy. It's like going bowling from three feet away. Jesus knocks the pins down. Everybody knows this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Easy peasy. But then after he answers their question, their attempt to stump him or make him look the fool, it's his turn, and he turns it around. Kind of like the show Matlock with Andy Griffith, if you remember that, or maybe Columbo. He starts with a series of kind of simple questions that don't really seem aggressive or invasive or like they're hostile up front. He asks them, who is the Christ? Whose son is he? Well, hey, that also is an easy one to answer. It's right there in 1 Samuel. It's David's son. The Lord promised that David his son would sit on his throne forever. Got it. All right. There we go. And we all know that that's how people address Jesus, too, and kind of leading up to that. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me, and the like. But then, he says, after they respond with that, fine, good, but I have a question for you. If that's true, that the Messiah is David's son, then how is it that David, when he's writing in the Spirit, and it's Psalm 110, verse 1, if you want to look it up, how is it that David, writing in the Spirit, refers to his son as his Lord? And then God says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. See, to us, titles aren't that big of a deal or whatever. You can call someone, you know, my son's age, sir, and no one will really bat an eye. We just sort of throw words like that around anymore. Ladies and gentlemen don't mean what they once did. It once, once actually had a connotation, kind of like Downton Abbey. You had to be a lord and lady Grantham to be called lady or gentleman, at least in the United Kingdom. But now we just throw it out, and sometimes we mean it ironically. We refer to somebody as a gentleman who is the opposite of a gentleman and someone to a lady who is the opposite of a lady. But to them, such words meant something. To call somebody Lord wasn't just something you could just say. It wasn't no big deal. It carried a lot of weight, and it's a confusing passage in the psalm. For David to say, the Lord God said to my Lord, referring to his descendant, if he's his son, how is he also his Lord? 
And the answer, of course, is obvious, certainly obvious for us, we who are Christians who call that son our Lord, too. David's son was his Lord because he was his Lord. He was his God. It was the Lord God of Israel incarnate in the flesh. That's how he can say, my son, my ancestor who will sit on my throne is not just my ancestor, my great, 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 great grandson, but he too is my, David's, Lord. And that is the evidence the Pharisees can't admit to. They can't follow it where it leads, and they can't add their amen to it. Christianity, the Christian faith, is, well, just that. It's faith, and it always has been. It's a word of promise given by God, and something that we, his people, believe. We say, God has said, I will do this, I have done this, I am this, and we say, amen. We believe that it's true. It's been true from Adam and Eve after they were kicked out of the garden all the way to the last day of this world by faith. Abraham, the patriarchs, the prophets, and the kings had the word of promise from God, and, well, they believed it. Simple as. But it's not just a faith that is baseless. There are, of course, evidences and proofs that God gave to his people, Old Testament and New, to show that he was true. He was, in fact, believable. God gave proofs of his faithfulness. And just as a quick example to Abraham, he gave Abraham the proofs when he stopped him from sacrificing his son Isaac, when he delivered him and gave him victory over the people that had taken Lot captive and helped him so much throughout his sojourning, these little proofs that God gave that I am faithful. And of course, the big one, well, Sarai, when she bore Isaac at such an old age, you better believe that is a proof that God is indeed faithful. All of these things and many more corroborating evidences that God was who he said he was. One had only then to take them or leave them, to believe or not. Jesus Christ came into the world as the promised seed, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, and so forth. He came as the promise, and what did he do throughout his ministry? But give proofs that he was who he said he was. Healing people, preaching good news to the poor, showing up the people that ought have known better by his deep knowledge of God and his scriptures. And finally, of course, the big one, being raised from the dead vindicating himself and his word. The evidence, of course, is clear from his life. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. But here, as we encounter with the Pharisees today, the evidence is also clear in the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures themselves. Jesus, the Messiah, would also be God in the flesh, David's son and David's Lord. Is it believed or not? Is it accepted or not? That's the dividing line. That is the question. The Pharisees, they just couldn't. As the kids say today, I can't even. They couldn't accept it. They couldn't believe it. And they answered him not. And it says no one dared to ask him any more questions because that really was a stumper. They should have believed it. They should have gone with the evidence that he laid before them in the Old Testament and then believed it, but they didn't. Sadly, it's still a common problem today for people to encounter Jesus Christ and not follow the evidence where it leads. 
The proofs are ever before us, just as they were for that first century audience 2,000 years ago. But many people still will not accept the evidence. They won't follow it to its conclusion and make the good confession of Jesus, my Lord and my God. Some people, like the Pharisees themselves, that did have a lot to lose by following Jesus, some people have things to lose in this life. The honor and praise of men, we are very quickly slipping into what many people are calling a post-Christian society. It's not abnormal in Watsika, Illinois, to go to church on Sunday morning or Saturday night, as it were. But in many places, it is the strangest thing in the world. And what's more, stranger, to confess yourself to believe that this carpenter's son from Galilee died and rose to pay for my sins before an eternal God. Some people, they encounter Jesus and they don't follow the evidence where it leads because, well, it takes up time. Time on Saturday night, time on Sunday mornings, things that I want to do otherwise, I don't want to give up to be a part of this thing called the body of Christ, the church. Other people, it's more mammon. It's not that they don't want to lose their time to follow Jesus. They don't want to lose time and a half. Something that they are paid to be working when Christians gather to celebrate that Jesus Christ is not dead, but he is living. And still others, and perhaps this is the biggest group of all, it's an afraidness or a scarce being scared of encountering ourselves. To look at ourselves in the mirror of the law and to see what we actually are. Not just not good people, but bad people. Worried that to put ourselves out there, we will in turn only be rejected by God, who is holy. But regardless of the reason that people don't follow the evidence, the evidence remains. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is David's Son. He is David's Lord. And he is our Savior. That's the evidence. He's not a liar. He's not a lunatic. He is the Lord. It's the evidence. It's where it leads. And God be praised for it. Because Jesus being these things, it's not just mere right answer on a test or a sermon review, as it were, for the CEC kids. It's not just an empty title that is on a nameplate outside of an office door, but for Jesus to be these things means that we have in him, by believing in him, eternal life, forgiveness, and redemption. Someone can be the king or the president of some faraway country, and it's true, but it doesn't mean anything for you and me. But Jesus Christ being who he said he was as David's son and David's Lord means everything to you and me because it means that believing in him and his blood, our sins are forgiven. His supper, his baptism, his word, his absolution, all of it affects what we are, makes us holy before a righteous and almighty God, and we can approach that God who made us cleansed and guiltless. Jesus is who he said he was. The evidence is clear. So let us never be then afraid to weigh the evidence. Let us never, for the sake of argument, be afraid to lay out the options, Lord, liar, or lunatic, before someone and let them weigh the evidence themselves. Because we know where it leads. We know the joy, the peace, and the glory that is in this life and the life to come for those that believe the evidence. That Christ is the Lord, the Son of the living God. So let us weigh it ourselves, do our best to help the people around us to weigh it, so they too might join us and the happiness and peace and glory we have in this body of Christ.
Through the same Jesus Christ, be all praise, honor, and glory now and forever. Amen.